They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, uh, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You know, it was interesting when I was in Connecticut, went up there for the 200th anniversary. There was a man who came up to me and he said, "You know, you recite those verses so many times that every morning when I get up, I review those verses in my mind every single day, and that makes such a difference in my life." Isn't that interesting? It's always good to get that kind of feedback. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're spiritually prepared to study the Word uh, this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your grace to us. You have given us tremendous blessings living in this country because we have such a heritage uh, bequeathed to us through our founding fathers that give us many, many blessings and freedom and liberty and the privilege of learning your word and to be able to live our spiritual life as unto you. Father, we don't know how much longer that will continue because there are so many forces that have been antagonistic to Christianity and the gospel for decades, and now as their numbers have increased, they are more overt They are more outspoken, and they are more vitriolic in their opposition to Christianity. And, Father, we need to be prepared, because just like these uh, Messianic Jews that Peter is writing to, who lived in an environment where their friends, their families, their business associates, and many others uh, rejected them because of their faith in Jesus as Messiah, this, too, may be part of our experience. And we may face opposition, persecution, rejection even from some of our closest friends and family. The only thing that will protect us will be your word as God the Holy Spirit strengthens us so that we can face whatever might come. Father, we pray that we might not take this lightly or or, uh, or ignore the provision of your word, but we may, may continue to dedicate ourselves to a rich study of your word that we might be strengthened and prepared for whatever may come. And we pray that tonight as we study, we may be able to focus and concentrate upon your word, and God the Holy Spirit will drive its significance home to each one of us in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to uh, read some things. Recently, I've been uh, rereading various uh, histories. I've been reading through Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is always fascinating. Some of the stories are a little too long to tell. But there are some vignettes that are uh, worth telling and reminding us because it's one thing to read these stories about uh, Christians and pastors who were imprisoned and were beaten and flogged and burned alive at the stake and beheaded. 
uh, when when everything is good and we're sitting in the safety of our homes and everybody in the country loves Christianity. But it's another thing to realize that this may be something to come in our own future. So it's a great encouragement to us to hear these stories, I think. Andrew and Elizabeth Renwick were Scottish, and they were weavers, and they lived in the hills of Glencairn in Scotland in the 1600s. All their children had died, and they uh, they were just grief-stricken. And Elizabeth pleaded with the Lord to give her another child. And the Lord blessed them with another child by the name of James. And they, they trained James up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and they, they taught him the scriptures. And he was a, a brilliant child and young man. And as he grew, uh, he, he loved the scriptures, he loved the Lord, and he went to the University of Edinburgh, but he was denied a, de- a, a de- degree because by that time in Scotland, uh, there had been the uh, restoration of Charles II in England, and Scotland was now under the, re- the rule of a Catholic monarchy. So the nonconformist, the evangelicals, the Bible-believing um, uh, Bible-believing uh, evangelicals and um, Protestants were not al- allowed to graduate, and they were co- uh, continuing to be persecuted. And uh, many of them were mar- were martyred. And James, as a young man in his in his in his twenties, stayed in Edinburgh, but he became more and more uh, alarmed as he saw uh, men and women that he knew that were nonconformists who were persecuted, who had their heads severed and their hands cut off and their heads would be posted on the walls and the gates of the city along with their hands and just left there to to rot and to be carrion for the various uh, carrion-eating birds and their their skulls would just, were just allowed to remain there unless someone who knew them came and, and took them down. He um, He left Scotland during that time and he went to uh, Geneva, where he was trained uh, at at Calvin's school. This time, by this time, Calvin was gone, but Geneva was still a major center for training uh, training uh, pastors. And he received his training there, and then he returned uh, to Scotland to preach and teach. He traveled throughout the Highlands, uh, preaching the gospel, organizing churches and Bible studies, and uh, he wore himself out. Uh, physically as he traveled through the night in the horrible weather in uh, in, in Scotland. Uh, frequently he lacked sleep, he had a poor diet, uh, but yet he continued to proclaim the gospel. And many times he just spent the night in a cave, uh, and he stayed there, and he avoided being captured, and, and many nights uh, he escaped from those who were trying to capture him. Uh, but finally, he was captured, he was put in prison, and he was charged with treason. And his widowed mother vi- uh, visited him in prison and would, would cry and, and weep for him and, and say, How shall I look upon your head and your hands upon the city gate? And on February the 16th, 1688, he was able to get a message to her that, that nothing, nothing would come. He said, uh, There's nothing in the world that I am sorry to to leave but you. Farewell, mother. Farewell, night wanderings cold and weariness for Christ. Farewell, sweet Bible and preaching of the gospel. 
welcome crown of glory, welcome O blessed Trinity and one God, I commit my soul into thy eternal rest. And the next morning he embraced his weeping mother, and then he went to the scaffold. After they hung him, they beheaded him, and they hung his head and his hands on the city gate. This is how these great men of God focused. They had dying grace. They focused on the word of God, and they went to the scaffold glorifying God and singing hymns to him and and glorifying him. I have one other so I read this later, and I thought, boy, that's really good. It's about a man named James Guthrie. Same time period, the mid-1600s. He was nicknamed Sickerfoot, S-I-C-K-E-R, Sickerfoot, which meant sure-footed in, in uh, Gaelic, I guess. He was, um, he was a, a solid leader. He was a man who was basically unflappable, and he uh, was a very, uh, very solid, stable personality. He taught philosophy at the University of St. Andrews, and he was a preacher of the gospel at a church in Stirling in Scotland. But on February the 19th of 1651, he was accused of disloyalty to the king because he taught that the Christians should be loyal to Christ and not the Scottish king, that the Scottish king should not rule the church. And as a result, he was arrested for... Uh, for treason, and he was indicted, and they said that he, quote, did contrive, complot, counsel, consult, draw up, frame, invent, and spread abroad or disperse, speech, preach, declaim, or utter divers and sundry vile seditions tending to the vilifying of his majesty. He was sentenced to be hanged, and on the morning of his execution on June the 1st of 1661, He rose about four o'clock in the morning for worship. When asked how he was, he replied, Very well, for this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. His five-year-old son was brought to him. He took the boy on his knee and he said, William, the day will come when they will cast up to you that your father was hanged. But don't be ashamed, lad. It's in a good cause. Guthrie soon mounted the scaffold. He preached for an hour to the crowds, preaching the gospel of grace. And then he was hanged, and his head was cut off in his hands, and they were put on the new Netherbow port. In the coming months, his little five-year-old boy would go to the gates to look upon his rotting father's skull, and he would come home to his mother and say, I've seen my father's head, I've seen my father's head. But he learned his lesson spiritually, the young boy, and he learned to lean on Christ. He learned to spend time alone in prayer. He excelled in school, and if it weren't for an early death, he would have become a a minister of the gospel as well. But Guthrie's bleached skull looked down upon the crowds until, or for 27 years, until a student climbed up and removed it and buried it with reverence. Just a couple of examples of how believers in the past have faced persecution and martyrdom because they stood for the gospel of grace. Well, tonight we're continuing in our study in First Peter. And those to whom Peter is writing uh, faced much the same kind of persecution. Now, it wasn't an official Roman persecution, but as I've said before, they were Jews 
who trusted in Jesus as Messiah, and as a result of that, they were opposed and rejected and vilified by their family, their friends, and the neighbors, which is the kind of thing that we saw in our study of Acts as Paul would go from town to town, from city to city. Uh, there would be many within the synagogue, both Jews and Gentile proselytes who would respond to the gospel, and those that did not would then turn against their their former uh, friends and neighbors and vilify them and vilify Paul, and they would bring up false charges, and, and they would have them imprisoned and tortured. And many times that happened to the Apostle Paul. And so uh, Peter is writing to the same types of people, Jews who lived in the northern central part of what is now Turkey, and he is encouraging them in how they should handle testing. And that's what we've seen, especially that focus in the last few verses, in verses uh, 6 down through 9. That's our focus, one sentence. And I just want to remind you of this a little bit. As we come to the next set of verses, verses 10 through 12, where the focus is on how the prophets in the Old Testament tried to understand what their prophecies were saying about the future suffering of the Messiah and the future glories of the Messiah. But to understand this, if you just go to these verses, if you just go to verses 10 and 11 and read it, you're going to come out with a totally different understanding. I was talking with somebody the other day, and um, they were asking me about some of the things I've taught recently in Matthew. And and I, I never would have come to understand, especially what we just covered in Matthew chapter 18, never come to understand some of those passages and what's happening in Matthew 18 if I w- wasn't teaching through Matthew verse by verse. Because when you're forced to slow down and go verse by verse, and teach through the book, suddenly you capture the context in ways you didn't before. And it it sheds new light. And sometimes what you think a passage means at first glance, just because you look at those two or three verses, isn't what it means at all when you put it within the structure and the context of the surrounding verses. And that's true about verses 10 through 12, often taken to refer to prophets looking at what would happen to Jesus when he died for our sins, and that's part of it, but it's much, much more than that. So as we look at where we came from, in verses 6 through 9, I pointed out that the focus is on surviving and having and being delivered by God through these intense trials, testings, suffering, and persecution. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you have been grieved by these various trials. And the purpose for those trials, as we've seen, is to test the quality of our faith, to strengthen our endurance, to strengthen our spiritual life, and to lead us in spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Our faith is tested by fire, Peter says in verse 7, so that it can be found to the praise and the honor and the glory. Notice that word because it's going to come up in verse nine, uh, verse 10. rather, The glory is mentioned for the first time there in verse, verse 7, that it may be found to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, the word joy, I mean, the word glory is again repeated when we're reminded that though now we do not see him, yet by believing 
we, re- we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Once again, we see that word glory, and the glory in both these verses is related to successfully handling the trials, the testing, the tribulations, the adversities of life. It's not related to uh, the, the, the sweet by and by at the glorification of our body, but it's related to when we, when we go into phase three salvation, but it's related to not only glorifying Christ in the here and now, but how that glorification of Christ today will reverberate uh, into eternity. And then in verse 9, where I wrapped up last week, pointing out that we're to receive, uh, the way we experience this is by receiving, it's an instrumental participle there, by receiving the end or the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And I pointed out last time that the way we want to read that is whenever we see the word salvation and soul, we're instantly thinking, going to heaven, we've been saved, we're not going to go to the lake of fire, we've been rescued from an eternal condemnation. But as I pointed out again and again, we have the, we use these words differently. So the word I pointed out for receiving indicates receiving something that is owed to us, recovering a possession, something that is, that is ours, and it's related to receiving a, a, a reward uh, and that reward is a temporal reward that comes at the end of our faith, the end result of our faith. So we go through this trial, and we trust the Lord, we claim promises, and we pray, and we go through it. It may last a week, it may last a month, a year, a decade, two decades. And then when we come out of the end of that, then we realize that God has strengthened our soul. We've grown and matured as believers and that's what's described here by the phrase, the salvation of our souls. It's really the deliverance of our life, and it's a temporal phrase. And I pointed out several verses where the word, uh, uh, where the word for soul, the word suke, is used and translated as just the life in Romans 11.3. They seek my soul. Translated correctly, they seek my life. Matthew 2.20, they, they wanted to take the life of the young child, the young infant Jesus. John 10.11, Jesus says he's going to give his life for the sheep and uses the word suke there. And in Philippians 2.30, talking about uh, Epaphroditus, that, that he did not regard his life so much that he... He worked himself almost to death in the ministry of the gospel. So we have these these various verses, James one twenty one, which is in a very similar context to 1 Peter 1, talking about receiving. As a believer, we receive the implanted word, which is able to deliver our life, our soul. It's not talking about justification salvation, for in James 1.18, uh, some uh, four verses earlier, James had already said of his own will he brought us forth. That's regeneration. He brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's writing to regenerate, justified believers, and he says you need to receive the word which is able to save your soul. They're already justified. They're already saved from the penalty of sin, but now they need to be saved from the from the uh, power of sin. They need to grow in terms of phase two salvation. 
And so this is, this is the thrust. We need to be delivered in the midst of our trials through those trials. And so just as a reminder, we have salvation that's used in these three stages, three tenses, three phases. People use different terms to describe them. Phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin when we trust in Jesus. It takes place in an instant in time. And then as we grow spiritually, we're saved from the power of sin. And then when we die and we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, then we are glorified. The focus in Peter is on being delivered, our life being delivered from trials uh, in this life. So having understood that, where at the end of verse 9, we talk about what kind of salvation here, phase 1, phase 2, or phase 3. Well, the context is clearly talking about phase two. It's not talking about phase one. So then when we come to 1 Peter 1.10, it begins, Of this salvation, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that would follow. And then in verse 12, to them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So much in these three verses... I've just highlighted a couple of words that ought to stand out to us. Of this salvation, what salvation? What are they talking about here? And I would bet that 999,999 times out of a million, this passage is taught to refer to getting saved from the uh, penalty of sin and looking at what Christ did on the cross. And what we've seen is that's not what Peter's talking about in this context. That's why I keep going back over context, context, context. And we have to understand that. That this salvation, as we'll come to understand, is phase two, not phase one. That changes how we understand what's coming up. But that's a key word. Then look at verse 11. We have the phrase, Spirit of Christ. Well, is that different from the Spirit of God? Is that different from the Holy Spirit? What does Spirit of Christ describe? And then notice at the end that these these prophets uh, taught and were trying to understand two things, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were follow that would follow. Now, what has Peter been talking about in the previous four verses? He's been talking about the fact that we're going to suffer today, but there would be glory that follows. That's what he's talking about. That's what he wants to drive our attention to is understanding that, that just like Jesus went through suffering, will go through suffering, but there will be glory that follows. That's the pattern he set up. And what these prophets are doing is they're not just trying to understand uh, when this is going to happen. They were definitely doing that. That's what the text says. They were trying to get more detail about who this would be. 
But this is what they're focusing, not just understanding the work of redemption on the cross that Messiah would perform, but understanding that trying to grapple with this whole understanding that the cross must come before the crown, that suffering must come before glorification. And so that's what Peter is talking about here. And then when we get into the second sentence of this three-verse paragraph, uh, he talks about those who preached the gospel, which is a three-word phrase that translates one verb in the Greek, and that one verb in the Greek is evangelizo, which is the word that we translate into evangelism. Uh, and so that's an accurate uh, translation. It is, we could say, through those who have evangelized you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then this odd phrase at the end of verse 12, things that angels desire to look into. What in the world does that mean, and how does that fit? Because that sort of takes you as an aside from everything else that's going on here and, and orients our, our suffering to its role in something the angels are looking at. That, that not only are we to be a witness to those we see around us, but that we are being watched by the angels to see how God's grace is manifest in our lives as we go through the midst, uh, the midst of suffering. So these are these, uh, these three verses. Now, one of the things I like to do when I do, do Bible study and I'm looking at a long verse is I try to just pick up on the main idea and say, what is he trying to say? Because when you get a two-verse, three-verse, or even an 11-verse sentence, sometimes uh, the writer tacks so many relative clauses and purpose clauses and, and other subordinate clauses onto the main tree trunk that you lose sight of what the main tree trunk is. And so I thought, well, maybe this way I can boil it down to un help us understand what the main idea here is in this two-verse two uh, two sentence. It's of this deliverance, he's saying. That's what he's talking about. The deliverance, the temporal deliverance we experience that's described in verses 5 through 9, of this deliverance from temporal testing, which brought glory to God, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully through the, the Spirit of Christ has testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. So twice we have in this in, in my summary here this emphasis on glory, because three times the word glory is used in this section, and so it's all about that's the end game, is glorifying Christ and glorifying God. But the present is going through the suffering, the adversity, but understanding how this brings uh, brings glory to God. Okay, with all of that said, that sets the stage and gets us focused. Let's start with the first verse. A lot of other doctrines that are here that we need to need to at least uh, partially address as we go through this go through this section. Now, the English translation, uh, the English translation that we have here begins of this salvation, and the Greek begins with that same phrase, but it's a little bit different, and it should be translated something. Uh, more like concerning which salvation. Uh, that, and that, so that relative clause that's translated uh, this there is, uh, in, in the Greek, is a, uh, uh, is a genitive, or excuse me, yes, a genitive 
Feminine singular, it's a feminine singular, which refers back to a feminine singular noun, which is the word salvation that is used at the end of verse 9. So he specifically, it's tied grammatically as well as in terms of the word to to the end of verse 9. So if that salvation at the end of verse 9 is temporal deliverance, then this is temporal deliverance. So it's tra- I've translated it and added a little to it. Of this salvation, that is the deliverance from and through uh, the testing. And the word for salvation there is that word soteria. It's a noun form. The verb is sozo, which we normally translate to save, but many times it's translated to deliver. Sometimes it's translated to heal because it was used of, of healing someone who was sick. If they were, were delivered from their sickness, they were healed. So it has a range of meaning. So you always have to look at the context to see, well, is this talking about, about getting saved from the penalty of sin? Is this talking about getting saved from the power of sin? Or is it talking about getting saved from the presence of sin? Is it talking about getting saved from some sort of temporal disaster? Or is it talking about getting saved from a disease? What are we being delivered from? That's, that's sort of the core idea, uh, to be delivered or to be preserved. And so you could translate this of this deliverance or of this uh, preservation. Our life's been preserved in the midst of this trial it's that uh, we've just survived in verse 9. See if I can survive the uh, congestion. Don't you love living in Houston when the weather changes? So this is our deliverance. So the prophets then, the idea here is that the prophets, that's really the subject of the sentence, the prophets... And then the main verb is that they've inquired and searched carefully concerning this salvation. That's the idea here. And it's brought out in the Greek. And the Greek word order, though, emphasizes um, some different, different ideas. So the first idea is what's stated up front in the Greek, and that's concerning this salvation. And then the second thing that you find in the Greek word order are the two verbs. So the second thing that Peter wants to emphasize are are the action of these particular verbs in which are translated to inquire and to search carefully. Now, what surprised me when I first looked these two verbs up is that they're initially they're both defined the same way to execute a detailed search or investigation. So they're they're very close synonyms. The first word is ekzeteo. The word zeteo is a verb meaning to seek out or to search something, and the prefix ek intensifies that, to seek out something. And so it has the idea of searching earnestly for something, searching in detail, maybe even conducting a scientific investigation. The second word is the word uh, used uh, to search something carefully. It's ex. Notice it's the same uh, prefix, which means out of, ex eranao, and that main verb eranao is going to show up in the next verse, but here it's an intensified form to seek out something diligently, to investigate, to inquire, and it's used uh, of uh, animals sniffing out the tracks to something. So it, it, both of these words give us an image of somebody who's doing detailed analysis, they're, they're digging through all of the particular, particular details. And, and it, that's something that I'm frequently accused of. I have a friend who, uh, I've gotten to know a colleague 
who pastors a rather large church up in Oklahoma City, who's presented a number of papers a number of times. He's a well-published author, presented papers a number of times at, uh, at pre-trib. And every time I give a paper, he comes up to me and he says, I tell the guys I bring here in my church that you're going to give a paper and you're going to seek out every detail. You're going to leave no stone unturned when you do an analysis on a topic. And they need to be there to listen to you. So I take that as a compliment. That's what these prophets were doing. They were leaving no stone unturned. They were thoroughly engrossed in every detail. There was nothing too small that wasn't worth investigating to see if it might have uh, some uh, greater significance uh, than it might appear at first glance. So they are seeking out, they're investigating, they're thoroughly uh, analyzing every prophecy that God has given them. The next thing that we point out here is that you have both the noun and the verb related to prophecy. You have the word the prophets, although in the Greek, the the, the article is not there. It's just prophets. He's saying of this salvation, prophets have inquired. Now, we know he's referring to the Old Testament prophets, which is why I think it's legitimate for an English translator to put the the in there just for clarification because he can refer to them as prophets without the definite article, and he's still indicating a specific, distinct class uh, that would be indicated by a definite article. So the article doesn't have to be there. Some nouns are just inherently definite, uh, and this would be one of them. So the, the, these prophets have inquired and searched definitely. The prophets who prophesied. And so by adding that verb, uh, prophetuo there, he's really indicating that these were the Old Testament prophets, and he's most likely referring to the writing prophets. Not all prophets in the Old Testament wrote. There are many prophets, men of God, they're sometimes referred to. For example, in 1 Samuel on Tuesday nights, when we've been studying, remember back in uh, the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2, there was a man of God, a prophet, who came and he announced judgment on the house of Eli from God. Well, he wasn't a writing prophet, but he was a man of God. He's not even named. He's anonymous. He just shows up on the scene and disappears. And that happens several times in the scriptures. They're not writing prophets. But but here this probably refers by using both the, the term prophets who prophesied, he's probably speaking specifically of the writing prophets who wrote down what God revealed to them under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that uh, just in, in just a little bit. So these prophets have who prophesied, and they prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And so we have to ask several questions here when we see this phrase, grace to you. First of all, what is this grace that he is talking about? What is this grace that he's talking about? Now, there's a number of different kinds of grace that I'm not going to mention that are theological categories that are perfectly valid, but I just don't want to get off into the, the weeds too much here. 
But what grace is this that we're talking about? If if we look at this the way a lot of people do, where they just go straight to verse 10, and they talk about this salvation the prophets inquired of, searching on what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was indicating. Uh, this is a great passage, and I probably used it this way at times myself. These They were trying to understand when the Messiah would come. But there's so much more going on here, and that's not the thrust of what Peter is saying. He's not just talking about salvation grace, but we have to ask these questions. Is he talking about common grace? Common grace is God's goodness. God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So in common grace, this is God's grace to the saved and the unsaved alike. second category of grace is saving grace. This refers to the grace of God's imputation of Christ's righteousness at salvation. When we trust in Jesus Christ at the instant we hear the gospel, we believe he died for our sins and paid the penalty for sins, then God instantly imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares us to be justified, and regenerates us simultaneously at the point of faith in Christ. Or C is this spiritual life grace where we are being sanctified the End of Second Peter three eighteen. Second Peter in verses three in verse chapter three verse eighteen, Peter says, "Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." So that spiritual life, that's phase two. That's that sanctifying grace, and then another kind of grace comes in phase three, dying grace. So there's a particular kind of grace associated with phase one, phase two, and phase three. You have saving grace, sanctifying grace, and dying grace. I believe here, because of the whole context that he's talking about, the spiritual life grace, the grace that God gives to each of us to enable us to overcome and surmount the the adversities of life. And so what we read here is that Peter is saying, of this salvation, that is this deliverance from and through testing, the prophets searched diligently, they investigated, they, they left no stone unturned in trying to understand this spiritual life grace that was coming, uh, coming to us. This, and notice in your text, in most Bibles it translates to something like, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that phrase, that would come to you, that would come, that's in italics. It's not in the original. So I've taken that out. They prophesied of the grace to you, the grace that God was directing to uh, to them as individual believers. And then verse 11 goes on to say, searching what? Now, that's not quite the best translation. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That first word there translated searching is a form, is the root verb of the word to inquire that we saw earlier. There it was ex aranao, and here it's just aranao. It's a participle which means that we have to look at several things and analyze it, and it's probably an adverbial participle, or it is an adverbial participle, and it probably means 
that this is an instrumental participle. This is the means by which they did this. They, they carefully investigated and analyzed the prophecies that they wrote by searching something out, uh, by searching or with reference to searching something might be another way to understand uh, this, the nuance of this participle. And then it's followed by two words. In the English translation of the New King James, they're what and then what manner of time. And in the Greek, you have the uh, prepositional phrase, which would indicate what person, what person's going to fulfill. Who's the one who's going to fulfill these many prophecies that we have related to the suffering of the Messiah? And this is one of the things that the Jews missed. Remember, he's writing to Jewish background believers who are being persecuted within their Jewish community for their faith. And and he's reminding them that these Old Testament prophets are the ones that prophesied about the sufferings as well as the glory of Christ, the cross and the crown, and that the cross and the sufferings had to come before the crown, the glories. And so he he says we're, they were searching what person? Who would fulfill these prophecies? How will we know the Messiah when he comes? What are going to be the clues? And we know that there were a number of prophecies that were given in the Old Testament that would help identify who this was, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be of the tribe of David, of the the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David, and that... uh, that, that he would heal people, he would heal the blind, he would heal lepers, and he would heal the deaf. And all of these would indicate uh, uniquely the person who was the, who was the Messiah. But then they also looked at when this would happen, what manner of time. And, and of course, we've spent many times studying through Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 24 through 28, uh, Daniel's great prophecy regarding the time, table for Israel, uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel, as it's referred to, which describes literally a period of 70 periods of time, of seven or 490 years, and that 483 years would take place between the, the, the issuing of a decree for, is, for Jews to go back and rebuild the fortifications of Jerusalem. Now, the first decree just let them go back to the land. There were subsequent decrees to do different things. But Daniel's prophecy indicates that they're rebuilding the the fortifications and the moat and the defenses uh, of Jerusalem. And the only one that fits that is when Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah back to rebuild uh, the walls of the city. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is about. And it occurred in 444 B.C. And there are going to be 483 years and we know that 483 years of prophetic years uh, are based on the Jewish calendar, which has a lunar, lunar cycle, not a solar cycle. So their years were 360 days. And if you do the work and you multiply 483 uh, times 360, you come out with 173,880 days. And that works out from the time of the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to the day that Jesus entered in on what's called Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry into the land, that that was fulfilled to the day. And it, then the text in Daniel says, after this, the Messiah is cut off. And it was just 
three or four days later that that Messiah is crucified. And then God hit the uh, stopwatch for Israel and time froze. And it's not going to be until the rapture of the church that God is going to hit the button again and the time will start that last seven-year countdown, which is the future uh, tribulation period. So based on that timetable given to Daniel, people like like Simeon and Hannah in Luke chapter 2 knew that the Messiah was going to be born just any time because we understand the timetable. The Magi, who were uh, Median or Persian Parthian, uh, a Parthian tribe that had risen in political power to where they were, they were basically the kingmakers, the one who would anoint the king, the power uh, over Parthia. They, some of them learned these prophecies from Daniel, who is considered a Rabmag. That word Rab means chief. Like the Rab Shaka, uh, who's the uh, one who announces to Hezekiah that they're going to clean his clock uh, for Sennacherib unless he just just surrenders, and he wouldn't do it. So the Rab Mag is the chief of the Magi, M-A-G, which was this tribe. And so when the Magi showed up on Herod's door, knocked on his door, and uh, they said, "Well, where's the king of the Jews?" and they weren't looking for him. His paranoia factor went right through the roof because he had already had to flee Judea 30 years earlier as a result of the Parthians invading uh, Judea. And so he is just just scared witless because uh, he thinks there's going to be another attempt on the throne. And that's why he's so paranoid, why he tries to kill all the babies in Bethlehem uh, once he identifies that as the birthplace of this new king of the Jews. So the Magi understood the timetable. They were looking for a sign uh, in the heavens for the stars. So when this sign appeared, they said, it, it, it's time to go. The Messiah is born. So the prophets knew, uh, had these clues as to what kind of person the Messiah would be and when the Messiah would come. So that's because they're diligently searching the scriptures. But then the text goes on to say that the spirit of Christ who was in them, it's this, the spirit of Christ uh, who is in them, who is guiding and directing them uh, in terms of their understanding of the, the text and the revelation uh, that they've been, been given. And so this, the, the Spirit of Christ then uh, is identifying this. And we know who the Spirit of Christ is because of Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9 says uh, that you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And up to this point, that's, the Spirit is always referring to God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It says you are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have, and then he changes the terminology. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So what we see due to the parallelism here, this this is synonymous, that Spirit of Christ is just another term for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit who Christ sent. Remember, he told his disciples, I will send you another comforter, and, and he will comfort you. He will guide and direct you. And so this is the Spirit from Christ, the Holy Spirit. So... It's the Holy Spirit who was in them, the Holy Spirit who is in them and is uh, indicating through revelation. He's not giving them some kind of liver quiver. 
He is, it's the revelation that they're given through, through uh, inspiration. He's indicating through what he testified, the content beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. So the word was indicating is this uh, imperfect tense verb. Imperfect tense means it's continuous action. It's not just a summary of the action, but this was going on and on and on in the lives of these prophets that more and more revelation was given to them, and they were writing it down like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and others in the Old Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit was continuing to make it clear, to reveal, and to explain what was going to happen. And he testified beforehand, and that is the verb pra-marturomai. Now, martyreo is where we get our word martyr. Now, we use the word martyr in English to refer to somebody who gives up their life uh, for the cause of Christ, and they're, they're, they lose their life. But the original meaning in the Greek was somebody who made a testimony. And a martyr, someone who gave up their life, was making a testimony about Christ. So it means to testify, but the P-R-O in front of it means to testify beforehand. So it's referring, again, to prophecy to foretell something. So God the Holy Spirit testified many centuries ahead of time about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So we had these two words, the pathema, which is the word that refers to the, the physical sufferings of Jesus at the time of the crucifixion. And the, uh, the Latin from that is where we get our word passion. Uh, we think of passion as emotion, but passion from the Latin means suffering. It's from pathema in the Greek, and it talks about the physical sufferings uh, that were uh, experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ leading up to his crucifixion and his crucifixion. And then the second thing he mentions is the glories the glories that would follow. And so this is the focus. It's not just on the sufferings of Christ on the cross, but the sufferings which lead to glorification and glorification of Christ, glorification of God, which is illustrating the fact that that as believers, we go through the same process. We're going to suffer, and we need to keep in mind that the end game is glorifying God, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I've gone through these verses, a question ought to have occurred to you, and that is something related to the dynamic of inspiration here. And this verse really isn't talking about the the, the process of inspiration, but I want to talk about that a minute. But it's also talking about the fact that as God, the Holy Spirit, revealed these future events and revealed the scripture to and through the the, uh, prophets, they didn't really understand a lot of what they were writing. To understand it, they had to then, in a separate process, it's not involving inspiration, in a separate process, they had to go back and study what they wrote. What in the world does that mean? I just wrote Isaiah 53, but I don't have a clue. I've got to start studying what God revealed to me so that I can understand what I wrote. See, we have this mystical, crazy idea that that just because they wrote it, they understood it automatically. They didn't. They had to search it diligently. They had to investigate what they wrote. They had to take Bible study methods 101, 102, 103, and 104 in order to understand how, uh, how what the Holy Spirit was revealing to them. 
And, and we get the idea that, that Bible study is something that just sort of happens to a pastor. I've heard people say, well, can't they figure it out? They've got the gift of pastor-teacher. Last time I looked, the gift of pastor-teacher was a gift of one, leadership, and two, communication, not investigation, not understanding automatically what the correct interpretation was. Doesn't have It's not the gift of interpretation. It's a gift of pastor, a leader, a teacher, a communicator. But it's not the gift of getting it out of the text. You still have to sweat mental bullets to understand what the text says, and you may not get it right sometimes. It's more frequently that you don't get it right in your first 10 years. I'm always glad that nobody can surface any tapes of my first 10 years in the pastorate. I remember hearing Charlie Clough say that when I was listening to him in the in the 70s. And I thought, well, you just have such great material. But, but you know, those first 10 years, you're trying to put it together just as much as, um, as anybody else. I have a rich, rich possession. And I don't let it out very much, but I give it to young pastors. I have, a, a, I have 25 lessons on Romans and Hebrews taught in 1955 by Bob Thiem. I have had people who sat under Pastor Thiem's ministry for 30 years or more, and they sat in my car, and I said, listen to this guy teach the Bible. He's pretty good. And I put those on, and they listened. They said, that's, re- that's really good. Who is that? His style was so different. Remember, he was ordained a Baptist, a conservative Baptist, in Tucson, Arizona. And when he first came to Houston and taught, even though he'd gone through Dallas Seminary, he preached like a Baptist preacher. That blows people away. Those of you who did not listen to him until after 1962, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. Those first 10 years, that was the foundation of what came later. But, you know, he would rip through Matthew in, in like 30 lessons. You know, he, w- he would teach Daniel in, in, in 25 lessons. That's what young pastors do because they're trying to figure it out. Later on, after you figured it out, it takes you 150 hours to go through Daniel and 300 hours to go through Ruth because you understand the richness and the depth of the totality of Scripture. But when you're, you're in your first 10 years, you haven't put it all together yet. You're still doing that. That's what these prophets were doing. Now, in the Old Testament, I mean, in the New Testament, we're told... By Paul to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is the Greek word theosnoustos, a combination of the word theos for God and noustos from pneuma for breath. God breathed. God is the author. It's not inspiration. Like we talk about Michelangelo being a greatly inspired artist or Mozart having a, 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 an inspired uh, musical talent. That, that's, that's human stuff. This is God breathing something out. It's outspired by God, okay? God is the source, and uh, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. What co- makes him complete is the Word of God, not human traditions, human efforts, human insights, motivational therapy, or anything else. And it's the Word of God that equips you for most of the th- good works that you do. Is that what it says? Every good work. You name the problem, God's Word's got a solution. It's, it's not 70%, 80%, or 99.9%. It's 100%. 
Jesus then says in Matthew 5.18, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all has been fulfilled. Now that's important because that says that Scripture is inspired down to the minutia. The, the yod, or the translated jot into English, the yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like our apostrophe. And, and if you drop that out of a word, it can change the whole meaning of a word because one of the things that changes from a cow stem verb to a hyphial stem verb is that they insert a yod uh, towards the, in the last syllable. So that, that can change the whole meaning of a word. Uh, then you have the tittle, which is the smallest part of a letter. And here I have a Hebrew letter, hey, and the Hebrew letter, hate. Can you see the difference? This is why seminary students go blind. Okay? And it's a difference in English, like the difference between an O and a P. That one line, it would be the tittle, or a capital R and a capital P, as in rug and pug. That leg on the R is a tittle. And, and that can make the difference between one word and another word. And between one form of speech and another form of speech. So that, that Paul says, now to Abraham and his seed were the singular, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, but to seed as one. So what, what Paul is saying here is that inspiration extends down to the grammatical distinctions in the parts of speech, that God the Holy Spirit is, is overseeing the inspiration so that if it's an imperfect tense rather than an aorist tense, it has significance. If it's a plural rather than a singular, it has significance. If it is a future tense instead of a, a present tense, and the only difference is one letter in many cases, that's, that's significant. Okay, so, so this affects our understanding of inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Second Peter 1, 19 to 21 says, says, uh, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Because you know this first, this is your priority of knowledge, that no prophecy of Scripture is given of any private interpretation. That means that, that, that the prophets didn't just gin them up, these things up in their own imagination. It didn't come out of their private thinking. It was breathed out by God, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that word indicating move was used of the wind moving a ship across uh, the, the sea. And so that, that you didn't see the force, but you saw its impact and you felt its result. And this is what inspiration is. This is the long-term, def, long definition we use. But basically what I'm emphasizing here because of what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, that it's the Spirit of, of God. It's the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. So supernaturally directed or superintended, which means he managed the entire process so that he directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, 
their individual personality, vocabulary, literary style, or personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original language and the original manuscripts. That's a doctrine of inerrancy. What may shock you today is to realize that that back there's always a battle for the Bible. In the 1970s, there was a huge battle for the Bible that was that, that was brewing in the Southern Baptist Convention. It was brewing among evangelicals, especially was centered out of Fuller Seminary in, in Pasadena, California, and also in the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church. And and the Southern Baptist Convention recovered remarkably due to the influence of a judge from Houston named Paige Patterson. I mean, named uh, Paul Pressler, a assistant pastor to. Uh, W.A. Criswell, who was at that time the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, uh, named Paige Patterson, who later became the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, now president of Southwestern Baptist Seminary, has turned those seminaries around. They were going far left, and most of their professors rejected inerrancy. Well, out of all that turmoil in the 70s, a group of evangelical pastors, including Baptists and some conservative Presbyterians and a lot of Bible church, a lot of my faculty at Dallas that, that, that I had at that time were part of this meeting in Chicago. And they produced a, a three- or four-page document called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And everybody agreed 100% with the people like Norm Geisler and Bob Thomas were among those men who crafted that statement. Now what's happening is that the, the definition of inerrancy always gets watered down every four or five years, and that's happening again, so that a New Testament scholar from an evangelical seminary uh, in, in Colorado, I think he's a Denver seminary, I'm not positive, but I think that's where he is, has said that Bob Thomas and Norm Geisler and two or three other guys whose names you wouldn't know uh, are all hyper-conservative and that 95% of the members of the Evangelical Theological Society would not agree with them. Well, to be a member of ETS, you only have to believe two things. One, the Trinity, and two, the inerrancy of Scripture. And if the inerrancy of Scripture, the meaning of that today is is not what it was in 1977, that 95% of the members of, uh, of ETS, which would include... Uh, probably the lion's share of, of professors at Dallas Seminary, not in the Bible Exposition Department, but in the, some of the other departments, and at Denver Seminary and many other seminaries, most of those men would, would, would not be qualified anymore to be members of ETS, but they have managed to water it down. How did they do that? By offering a sloppy hermeneutic. See, you can still say, I believe in inerrancy, but my tool for interpreting it is so loose that it's not, not that I'm not interpreting it literally, and I can get around it. That's the danger that happens all the time. But if the wor- but if God, the Holy Spirit, breathed it out, it's without error by definition, because God is not the author of error. And so we can trust the Word of God, and we have to trust it. And in the original, it's without error. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time tonight. May we be reminded, encouraged of the truth of prophecy. The prophecy in the Old Testament focused on the Messiah who would come and he would first suffer and then he would uh, be glorified. In the same way, we go through life and we suffer in this veil of tears and we face adversity and heartache and hardship and maybe even uh, persecution and martyrdom. 
but this is merely the prelude to glorifying you and glorification of you at the judgment seat of Christ. And may we keep our eyes on the end game, focusing on where we are headed in eternity and not be distracted by, by the stuff that we face each and every day living in the devil's world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.